0: So we're continuing then our series in uh, the book of uh, Kings, following uh, Elijah, and soon on to follow the ministry of uh, Elisha, who followed him. Uh, it's uh, about week five. You can find everything at uh, forward slash rise up. If you're looking on Twitter, then hashtag time to rise up, because rise up is some American football uh, uh, uh team in Atlanta, and you won't get through all of those, believe me. And uh, uh, let's pray together as we come to it. No, one more thing before we pray together. The, you know, the, the first verse about the the, the genocide, as it, as it might be referred to, where Elijah kills all the prophets. How, how do I work that out? How do I make sense of that? Um, I'm not going to talk at all about that this morning. Um, But you can find, uh, on my blog where I've talked about, uh, I'll, I'll retweet it or something so it's easier to find, where, where I talk about how do we, how do we understand the, the, what appear to be the genocides, the mass killings in the Bible that God seems to sanction or, or even approve of. So we'll tuck that to one side. That's a good discussion, um, for another, for another time. Father, would you help us as we get into these verses together to hear what you are saying to us and for us? Uh, today. Would you lift the truth out of the page? Would you help it journey uh, the 3,000 years, whatever it is, into our time and place? Not that we might live like them, but that we might live according to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Elijah, in the face of ongoing and persistent uh, apostasy and idolatry that had dogged the nation for many years, Elijah rises up and says, enough's enough. This can't go on anymore. And he makes his stand against King Ahab. And we've seen over the weeks how once he'd made a stand, once he'd committed himself to the cause, once he'd, he'd got himself gripped by the vision that God took him aside in order to uh, build his character, that God was going to cut him down to size in private in order to build him up in public, that God was going to go deep into his life in order to help him rise tall. And we left Elijah a fortnight ago, having had a massive victory on Mount Carmel, where... Uh, as we noted towards the end after this big uh, battle, this big confrontation with the prophets of Baal uh, and after their utter failure to call down fire onto the offering and how Elijah had kind of made fun of them and uh, highlighted the inconsistencies in their religion and their lack of faith. At the end of it all, Elijah just goes, he just prays to the Lord and the fire comes and everyone goes, yes. That's the moment uh, that we've all been longing for. And so you get to this point in the story where you imagine that it's a day uh, well done uh, and uh, Elijah's looking forward to uh, home. His mind turns to a warm bath, a hot meal, feet up, British bake-off final on the telly, all that kind of stuff. He's done more than enough today to secure a night in by, uh, the fire. And you can imagine him at the end of that moment, that the sort of, the adrenaline that's been running, the physical, the emotional exhaustion, the utter relief that the fire came and fell on the altar, that his heart might turn towards home. But this final section that we're going to look at this morning, uh, that hardly gets a mention because it, it gets pushed aside because of the focus that we naturally have on what happened at Mount Carmel. We see that Elijah doesn't think and run for home, but we see him digging in to what he believes God has called him to. And this final section is an invitation to us or a reminder to us, or a warning lest we forget, not to think that a job is done, when actually it isn't. Elijah had won a great victory, but that wasn't the goal. The goal, the vision, what was on Elijah's heart, that mimicked God's heart, was for the nation to be won back was for a nation to find restoration and renewal in the living God, was for a nation to throw away its idols, and for God's covenant blessing to be made known in the nation again. So for as long as this nation suffered crippling drought, and they had done for three and a half years, Elijah's job was not done. You see, Elijah was focused on his true purpose. God's restoration of the nation. We expect Elijah, I think, to do what Ahab did. He goes home for a meal. It's been a long day, goodness me. But Elijah can't rest. He can't settle. Because the vision is razor sharp for him. And the vision for Elijah was not a great experience. And the vision for Elijah was not to see God show up in great power which he had. Neither was the vision to see the prophets of Baal exposed, humiliated and defeated. Although all of those would need to happen for the vision to be fulfilled. The vision was for a nation to be rescued, restored and redeemed. I think there's a lesson for us here. It's the danger of thinking we've reached the goal when we haven't. And it's all too easy when we experience a good, healthy, wholesome, victorious experience of God to begin to see that as the goal, not as a stepping stone on towards it. We can so easily get lured into thinking that an event in time has achieved for us the goal, the vision that God has laid on our hearts. To see something that is part of the process as the end result. And for goodness sake, Elijah had a pretty good day, wouldn't you have thought? Publicly exposing them, rooting them out, demonstrating convincingly the sovereignty of Yahweh. Brilliant things, great steps, but not the goal. What brilliant things and great steps might there be for us... That we might get lured into thinking it becomes synonymous in our minds with the goal. Four churches working together or worshipping together like last Sunday is fantastic. And I remember the first time that it happened a year or so ago when we were bursting at the seams here. and, And everyone was going, wow, this is such an amazing thing to have happened. It's very easy then to begin to think that those moments, those experiences are the goal. We, we have become a, a, a whatever church because with these other churches we can do this great thing together. But it's not the goal. However brilliant last Sunday was, it's it's not the goal. The goal is men and women meeting Jesus. The goal is the transformation of these streets. The goal is this community, however we choose to define that, being changed by God's kingdom. Four churches discovering the power in Jesus of working together is a pretty mega step along the way. No? Don't care? But it's not the goal. And we mustn't get lured into thinking, why don't we just do that more often? Well, maybe we should, but unless it empowers us, unless it energizes us, unless it enables us towards the vision that God has laid on our hearts, then we miss the point. And I think very often the enemy is so subtle Very often we have a great experience of God and we get lured into thinking that that's the goal. And we can become experience seekers and we can become worship junkies and we can become event addicts. And we can and we can and we can and we can. In our discipleship for example, it's easy for part of the process to turn into becoming the goal falsely. So in discipleship, I need to read the Bible. In discipleship, I need to see things in God's word that I haven't seen it yet. And that is an energizing thing for some of us in and of itself. We can go home from church stirred by what we've learned or relearned or seen from a new perspective. Do you know, I've never thought of it like that. And that builds energy within it. That's a good thing, a, a right thing. We can skip home from our small group excited by an idea that we've seen that we didn't have before. It feels like, yes, I'm growing as a Christian. I'm becoming more like Jesus because these things are going on in my life. But you're not and we are not. New ideas of themselves do not make us more like Jesus which is annoying isn't it <laughs> Is studying the Bible essential to discipleship yes our fresh insights absolutely part of the christian story yes but growth becoming like Jesus only happens when i put something into practice thank you but it's so easy For me, and maybe some of you, to pull in at the exciting stage of something new and feel like we've grown as a result of it, and it's an illusion, and the enemy is prowling around trying to see who he can entice, who he can devour. It's an easy trap, isn't it? So many, we long for people to come to Jesus. And because we long for people to come to Jesus, we long for them to come to church. Although church doesn't always help people find Jesus. But well, that's a, another story, isn't it? As we struggle to become a, a church environment that really helps people connect with Jesus. But it's easy then when someone comes to church to go, ah, down tools. I'm gonna hand them over to the vicar, the minister, the service, whatever's gonna do its job now. And it's an illusion. And we need to be really careful that we don't have a really big breakthrough like Elijah did and get so excited by the breakthrough that we fail to see the vision. We fail to push on and see what the breakthrough was actually for. Sunday mornings are brilliant at this, aren't they? Read the Bible this morning? Tick. You've listened to a sermon? Some of it? Tick. Said amen to the prayers. Tick. By Sunday lunch, you're a pretty good Christian. It's an illusion. Think of an area of your life that the Lord would lay on your heart right now and ask this question, are you clear about the goal? Are you clear about what's the vision? I might... And this is where it's, it's, the enemy really gets to work. You might have had a really big breakthrough in that particular area of your life. And it would be so easy, like Elijah would have been tempted to call it a day at that point. Yes, I've had this massive breakthrough. I'm on the right track. But what's the breakthrough for? What's the real vision? What's, what's really the work of God in this scenario? You see, harvest, I don't know what you see. What do you see? That's not a rhetorical question. What, what what do you see? Bread, flowers? Anything else? Welcome. What do you see? Table, table. Wow, nearly missed that. Table. Yeah. What do you see? Set for the last supper. What do you see? An invitation, a welcome, last supper, a table, bread, fruit, flowers, family, abundance, celebration, something over here, God's provision, sharing and something else, God's creation. Fantastic. You imagine for a moment, this table is all of those things. Something else I see is a family table that we've heard mentioned already. And, and picture with me for a moment the family. Whether you had something on your table was a matter of life and death in this culture. Whether you had something on your table was a matter of life and death. And so you would work through the planting and the various seasons. Because you knew that come harvest, it, it wasn't a nice to have, it was a we need this harvest if my family is going to survive. And this harvest table of abundance tells a story. And one of the stories that it tells is that for these families, the vision was absolutely clear. When it was all said and done, it didn't matter for one moment whether we'd had a a really nice time working on the farm this last year. Whether we'd all got on really well on the farm this last year. It didn't matter whether this last year it had been easy work because there were lots of people, lots of labour, or whether it was hard work because there were a few labourers. It didn't matter whether they'd got a new oxen and a nice clean plough, or whether they were still using the aged old faithful oxen and a rusty old plough. The vision was clear. No food, no family. That was it. And nothing else mattered. If there was no harvest, there was no life. And Elijah was clear about the true purpose. And he was also clear about his true provision. That there were only some things that God could do. And we reach this point in the story where he knows that what needs to happen next, the rains need to come, only God can do this. For all Elijah's labors, for all his efforts, for all his work, only God can bring the rain. And so he stays in that place. What does it say? Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face Between his knees. I've got nothing to offer here. Other than my prayer. I've got nothing to offer. Other than my dependence. I've got nothing to offer. Other than God. You need to be faithful. To that which you have promised. He sends the servant to go have a look. Servant comes back and says nothing mate. Elijah knows. He can't fix it. He just has to wait. Don't you hate things? You can't fix. Don't you hate having to wait? Those things that you can't control. The harvest celebration was a massive celebration that God had provided because only God can provide. They had worked. They had planted. They had harvested did, but it was God alone who provides. And as they laid the table after the gathering in of harvest, when there was abundance in the family, you can understand how easy it would have been for them to think, do you know what? We did this. We did this. We plowed. We harvested. We sowed the seed. We got the fields ready. We organized the workers. We did this. And God warns the people about that way back even before they'd inherited the land. Remember, when you go into the land, remember the Lord your God for it is He who gives you the what? The ability to produce wealth. And so confirms His covenant, His promise, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. One of the main Themes of harvest, one of the, 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 the things that lie at the heart of the celebration, the, the family meal that harvest was, was not how hard they had worked as a family. It was not a knees up to them and their efforts, but it was a bowing down to God's faithfulness. And we need that constant reminder that God alone provides. That God alone does what only He can do. And there are constant reminders of this everywhere. We sow seeds, but God has been making it grow. And Elijah, in this crucial moment, is forced again... To face the lesson that he's been learning already as we have heard over the weeks. That he needs to remain in that place of being totally and utterly dependent on God. And the harvest was peppered with such reminders. Can you imagine for a moment the, the, the first big meal after the harvest has been gathered in? when it seems like there is loads of food, when the harvest has been successful and there's a time of feasting and celebration, the work is over, we've got enough to get through the winter, a feeling of safety and security rests on the family. It's hard to imagine the sense of relief and release that this time of celebration brings. And what God does in this time of celebration is to stop them thinking this is all about our effort. This is all about what we have achieved. And the first way God did that was to introduce the the festival of what's called the first fruits. I want you to imagine that you're watching week on week your supplies in the barn get less and less and less. And there comes a point when you go into the barn and you look at the supplies that are left and you begin to count the number of days, the number of weeks still to harvest. And you sit around the table and you say, guys, we we need to slow down. We need to miss a meal or two. We need to cut back. We need to fast for a bit. Our, Our supply is running low. And then, as they work in the fields and they're conscious of their supply running low, they're wondering about the harvest. Will the harvest come this year? Will it be a bumper harvest? Will it be just enough to scrape through? And can you imagine their sense of relief when they begin at harvest time to gather the first fruits, the, the very first fruit and produce from their harvest? How precious. Those first fruits would be to them a sign of hope that as their supplies are dwindling down to nothing, there is new supply, there is new life being offered to them. That first harvest would have been rich with meaning. So get what I'm talking about. And God says, I want you to take that first harvest and I want you to give it back to me. I don't want you to take it into your barn, even though you're, you're really anxious about your supply, and I don't want you to take it to your table, even though you're perhaps not feeding as well as you did some months ago because you're aware that the supplies are running. I want you to offer it to me. What's God saying? saying I want you to trust me. I want you to know that this life that you live is not yours, but it's mine. I'm giving it to you. It's a gift. And it's not about you. But it is all about me. Imagine too, what's going on in your heart when you get forced to offer those first fruits to God as a total sign of trust that the full harvest will come. As a total declaration that you're going to put your life in God's hands. And then you get into the busyness of the harvest and it turns out that the harvest is doing quite well and you get all the laborers in because harvest time is really busy. You can write what I know about harvest on the back of a postage stamp and have room for all the names of the Bible. But I do know this, that at harvest time, it's a busy period depending on the weather. You have to seize the moment. Anyone know what I'm talking about? No, of course you don't because you got a Tesco's and stuff. Little and Morrison, no idea about harvest and neither have I. Sometimes in August or, or that sort of time, you'll drive perhaps late at night up one of the motorways and you'll see tractors with the lights on out in the field and you think, goodness me, haven't they got a life? It's because they know the weather, they know the seasons. It's now the harvest needs to be gathered in. It's very labor and time intensive. So isn't it weird that when Jesus when God gave them the sabbath six days you shall labor but on the seventh day you shall rest and during plowing season it's okay to keep working all the time because it will be a busy season for you No in, in six days you'll work and on the seventh you'll rest and make sure that you especially observe the sabbath during the harvest season what's God saying What's the, what's the message? What's the, what's the point? What's, what's being reinforced? What, is, what principle does God want us to understand? Why must we rest? Because it's not about you. It's not about the success of your hard work. It's not about the success of your labors. It's not dependent upon you. God is sovereign and he can take care of the harvest whether you do it or not. So elijah just got it with his head between his knees. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. Where are you trying to achieve in your life what only God can do? Where are you not giving yourself a Sabbath because you think it's all about what you can achieve? Where are you not resting? I don't necessarily mean physically, but where are you? Uh, It can be. Where are you not resting because it's, it, it, life and its success is dependent on you? See, the grace that we discover in Jesus was being taught all the way through the Scriptures that God provides and we cannot earn it or deserve it and we must avoid the illusion that we have created it by ourselves. Because even The ability, says Deuteronomy, to create it is a gift from God. And then we see seven times back and forth Elijah's true persistence. What's going on? Elijah can see something that can't yet be seen. So he says to the servant, Go and look for the cloud. And the servant comes back and says, Can't see it, no cloud. But Elijah can see by faith what doesn't yet exist in real time and, and space. But why? why? Why the delay? Why the seven going back and forth and all that? Why doesn't God get on with it? Do you ever think, why doesn't God just get on with it? Why the faffing about? What's God saying to Elijah? I'm only going to do this if you're good enough. No. Elijah can't do anything but Wait. But sometimes we have to be persistent to receive what God wants to give us. We never have to be persistent to earn it, but we do have to be persistent sometimes to receive God's good gift into our lives. Imagine if Elijah had cleared off after asking five or six times. Where is God encouraging you today to hang on? Perhaps just to Wait with your head between your knees, saying, God, I can't do anything to fix this. I'm waiting. It's all about you. I can't do it. I've kidded myself that I can fix it. I've kidded myself I can make the rain come, or whatever the equivalent would be, in your situation. But I can't do that. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And then finally, Elijah's true prophecy. There's a brilliant picture at the end, which perhaps has been made famous by illustration and so on, of Elijah running ahead of the chariot. They're anxious to get back home, the rains are going to come, it's soon going to be awash with mud and so on. And uh, this picture, Elijah, by the power of the Spirit, races past Ahab on his chariot and runs ahead of Ahab to Jezreel, where Ahab was uh, based. There are two things we need to understand about the culture to get the significance of the image. The first is that if a king was on a chariot, uh, that there would be a runner that would run ahead of the king on the chariot to kind of make way, to clear the riffraff out of the way, to make sure so it was a smooth path because the king is coming. A bit like the way when ministers walk into a room, everyone stands up. Do you know, that sort of respect and honor, that kind of thing. About three of you can remember those days. That That sort of cultural thing where where a a runner would go Elijah is saying look I will run ahead of you Ahab I'll do that for you which seems quite odd seeing as Elijah and Ahab have been in confrontation I said I will do you the dignity I will honor you as king I will run ahead of you I will make sure the way is clear for you but there's another part of the image you need to understand Uh, and that's that the rain clouds are gathering and they're gathering in the picture behind Ahab and the chariot, and Ahab and the chariot are racing ahead of the rain clouds in order to, uh, in order to avoid them. Now, the, in, in, in their context, in their cultural understanding, God would often sit, metaphorically, on the stormy rain cloud. God was above the storms. God was in charge of even the most violent uh, thunder or, or lightning storm. And so even in the Psalms you get pictures sometimes of, of God seating, seated in that kind of place. So what's Elijah saying in this image as the rain clouds are gathering and the chariot is here and Elijah's running ahead. Elijah is saying, look Ahab, this is your chance, this is your moment. I will, I will submit to you as king, but you must understand Ahab that whatever your kingship means here on earth, there is one greater than you to whom you must submit. There is one greater than you to whom you must give your life. There is one greater than you that must be served, honored, and obeyed. Elijah's true prophecy, as it's always been to Ahab, was simply to stop resisting and to start submitting. Where is your heart still? unbroken before God where are we not yet in that place of willing to submit see Ahab hadn't got there yet had he all those prophets of Baal get slaughtered and Ahab thinks I'm going to go home for tea I mean he's nowhere spiritually he's nowhere in taking personal responsibility for what's happened in his nation he's nowhere near yet repenting and turning around and in his powerful vision Elijah saying to Ahab come on what are you going to do about this and maybe there are areas of our lives where we're still not taking responsibility in the way that we should. Maybe there are areas of our lives that have still not been broken before God in the way that they need to be. Maybe there are places in our hearts that have not yet bowed down to His Lordship. And this is the place. This family meal, this communion table, this place of provision, this celebration of what God has given, all there wrapped up. A place for us to engage our hearts, but also a place for our hearts to be broken. I I couldn't do this. I couldn't achieve this. This gift of food, but ultimately this gift of His sacrifice, is not because I've earned it. It's not because I'm worthy of it. Not because I've achieved it by my own merit. It's a gift. It's a gift. And I couldn't have labored for it even if I'd wanted to. Where is our pride and our stubbornness challenged? Where are we left? Asking the question, where does God need to touch my life? And in the end, it's the ultimate harvest, isn't it? That the Lord has provided. And all the way through the scripture, says, so make sure, make sure you never miss it. I am the one that provides. Let's pray.